in a hard field like journalism, there's a lot of push and there's a lot of like, you can do better than this. And I'm sure that's part of what she thinks, but at least in my experience, how she approaches it is in a way of deep compassion and trying to draw out the things that make you excited about the work that you're here to learn to do. I mean, she would convince you to try like really big things, you know, that were really just total long shots. You wanna like go to Nicaragua? Cool, absolutely. Like here's some ways to pay for it if you can figure it out. She would never tell you not to do something. It's like someone has walked this path that's really hard before me and I can see myself in that person's shoes and I know that I can walk that path too. And it's awesome that Nadia is just a phone call away so that as I walk that path, if it's hard, I can call the trailblazer who put it down. This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together, a podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our beautiful mountain campus. You just heard the voices of A.J. Williams, Andrew Graham, and Nikki Ouellette talking about our guest on this episode, Nadia White, professor in UM's program in environmental science and natural resource journalism. I'm your host, Ashby Kench, associate dean of the graduate school, and I'm delighted Nadia is joining us on Confluence. She's been at UM for 16 years now and has been instrumental in sustaining the graduate program in journalism. She and I got to know each other through her service on graduate council, where she is a tenacious advocate for graduate students and a clear-headed thinker about the value of graduate education in a modern university. Every episode on Confluence, our guests read a passage about rivers drawn from poetry or literature. We're double-dipping this week with two poems by W.S. Merwin. First, we'll hear Nadia read River from Merwin's late-life collection, Garden Time which reflects on loss and change through a dialogue with the great Chinese poet Li Po, whose poem, River Merchant's Wife, was made famous by Ezra Pound's translation. River by W.S. Merwin. Li Po, the little boat is gone that carried you 10,000 li downstream, past the gibbons calling all the way from both banks, and they too are gone, and the forests they were calling you from, and you are gone, and every sound you heard is gone, and now there is only the river that was always on its own way. But Nadia has also chosen a poem from W.S. Merwin, One Story, which has a deep significance for her, and she'll share it with us. We'll hear her read it and dive straight into the episode, where she talks about the importance of finding our own story's place in this bigger one story, a key role for journalism in the digital age. Nadia's ties to Missoula and the West run deep, her grandmother was a student in UM School of Journalism in the 1920s, and she had a career as a reporter in Wyoming before becoming a professor. We discuss the state of the field of journalism today and reflect on the opportunities and challenges for the next generation of journalists, especially those covering the science of climate change and natural resource constraints. Nadia's grounded, sane, and thoughtful voice of support for the changes underway in the field of journalism are essential listening in our age of noise. Welcome to Confluence, where the river is always on its own way. Enjoy the float. One Story by W.S. Merwin, just the first and last stanzas. Always, somewhere in the story, which up until now we thought was ours, whoever it was that we were being then had to wander out into the green, towering forest, reaching to the end of the world and beyond, 
older than anything whoever we were being could remember, and find that it was no different from the story anywhere in the forest. But what came out of the forest was all part of the story. Whatever died on the way or was named, but no longer recognizable, even what vanished out of the story, finally, day after day, was becoming the story. So that when there is no more story, that will be our story. And when there is no more forest, that will be our forest. Thank you for joining Confluence, Nadia. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ashby. And thanks for sharing that poem. It's it's beautiful. And um, tell us about it. What, what what role has it played in your life, and how is it, you know, functioning for you to kind of as a reminder of what you do? Yeah, you know uh, that poem by Merwin. One story is from his collection uh, called Travels, which really deals a lot with um, uh, indigenous voices uh, in contemporary time and the idea that. Uh, we are all together on a changing planet. And I came across it in uh, when the when the book was new in ninety four i was a I was a um, reporter in washington, d c covering public land issues and the federal government involvement in western states for the Casper Star Tribune. And it was a hard job, and I felt very alone and um, caught really in uh, the the tide of politics and policy. Um, I was young, um, and in that uh, solitude of being a one-person bureau, uh, I, the poem really helped to ground me in the idea that we're all just part of uh, capturing the stories of our times and trying to add context and accessibility for our readers and for the audience. And somehow that story over time has uh, that poem has really soothed me and reassured me that this is the human experience, that the human experience is one of being lost in a series of stories that we don't know and can't control. And as journalists, the best that we can do is provide accurate reflections of the context of our time and ask in good faith that our audience take that information and make the best decisions they can for the democracies that we're living in. Uh, and that, that poem I just find very grounding. That's beautiful. I love the way it's, it's got such vertical depth for you because yeah. it captures, you know, okay, again, the, the ethical grounding and the sense of a story that's a, a deep story, a, deep, a story of deep time, right? A story of deep ecological time and, and, uh, and earthly time and human time on top of that. And then the story of yourself, you know, and, and the, the work you do as a journalist. That's, that's beautiful. And, and you've said that it, it, it resonates with some of your students, right? You, you, this poem sits on the outside of your door, <laughs> yeah, you know, we all know that uh, students spend a little bit of extra time on the outside of our doors during non-COVID times. Um, hopefully there will be an after time as well as a before time. So I have uh, uh, a couple of poems and, and uh, reading materials on my door. That, that poem is uh, one of them. And uh, Mary Oliver's Wild Geese, which I think is always uh, a reminder to all of us, but especially to younger students, um, that you are the agent of your own momentum and destiny, and you should seize that opportunity to save the only life you can, your own. Yeah, and, and the Merwin story invites you into a bigger story about what that would mean. In yeah. other words, you're saving your life, but then you're joining this one story, this more unified human experience. That's, that's gorgeous. 
And that that hits on a theme that we uh, try to hit on in every episode, which is the way of a kind of poem or a, a well-crafted piece of writing uh, can really um, have a big impact on people's lives, their their thinking. Um, and I, I, you know, we've been exchanging about uh, your rereading Barry Lopez right now. And that's another book and another author that's had a big influence. Tell us about that. You know, uh, Barry Lopez's Arctic Dreams, I think for so many of us, was an, uh, the first introduction to his work. And uh, he died last year, um, many years after the publication of that book. Um, but it it uh, his the intention that he presented in Arctic Dreams um, to really, with humility, explore a culture uh, and learn broader lessons from a culture that's been uh, kind of marginalized in its uh, in the Western storytelling. Um, Arctic Dreams was just this beautiful early example of that for me and of the intentionality of a storyteller and of a truth teller. Um, it happens that I have a signed copy of Arctic Dreams that I got um, a number of years ago at the when the creative writing was doing their silent auction whiskey and uh, literature. Great event. Silent auction. <laughs> Great <laughs> event, <laughs> listeners. To make sure you catch it. Fabulous. <laughs> the opus in the fall. <laughs> Fabulous event. And I bid like crazy to get a signed copy of Arctic Dreams and a bottle of whiskey. The bottle of whiskey is long gone, but the book um, lingers on. Yeah. So um, I am kind of spending time right now trying to re-remember how to read. I think we've lost a lot of that facility. And mm. um, and I'm alternating between fiction and nonfiction. I, I have not read a ton of fiction lately. And, and, and in fact, I don't read many books uh, these days, I read a tremendous amount of my students' work, and I read, <laughs> I read uh, a lot of journalism. I mean, that's what we what we do. So I'm taking the time to try to uh, luxuriate in words again. And so, uh, Horizon. So I have a large stack of books, and Horizon's turn came up. And Horizon is uh, Barry Lopez's last book, and it's it's a memoir and looks back on his motivations as a storyteller, and it's a slow walk through five different scenarios and I am kind of constantly struck by the structure he brings um, to his storytelling and the humility he brings. So for a man who lived incredible adventures, his stories tend to focus on the most mundane times in his experience um, and really in many of the most mundane places, kind of overlooking vast landscapes and finding his inspiration there. So it's it's well, been a, a great blessing to be able to spend time with. It was words. prompted by you that I picked it up, and and uh, I've been reading it too. And I, 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 what you just said is exactly my experience. The 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 ability to kind of zero in on a on a salient and surprising. Uh, experience that probably passed him by in the original moment, but maybe yeah. he had notes on it, but it sticks. And I, the one that I just encountered in the book was the Afghan woman that he encounters in the back in a back room who has literally gone crazy from the experience of war. And she comes screaming naked down a hall. And it's just this flash of an image, but it crystallizes so much about that region's suffering and experience and how it impacts on the body and on one human being. So it, it's it's amazing. And it all kind of comes out of nowhere in the in the memoir. It's really brilliant writing. Yeah, it's, I found when I, I literally picked it up because it was the next book on the stack and uh, um, read maybe the first section or two. And at the natural stopping points in the book, 
they are so nat- natural. They are places that you want to stop and let the last words of a section resonate for a while and think about the meaning and maybe go to sleep or <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah. go on about your day. But uh, it's just a beautiful book um, yeah. that I'm enjoying right now. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And so you and I, I think, have uh, in, in at least broad sense a similar journey. We both went to kind of small liberal arts colleges and ended up teaching at a public research university, but in between, very different. Tell us your Montana story. How did you end up here? How did you become a professor and where did it all start out for you? I, I do think story guides us. Um, I think our own personal narratives are really important. And um, two of my family narratives kind of collided to bring me here. Uh, one, uh, my grandmother, my, my father's mom, uh, grew up at uh, on University at Avenue here, um, midway down the first block, and um, was a always just told stories of growing up in Missoula in the twenties and uh, and earlier. Uh, she attended UM. She attended the School of Journalism. It was always in my awareness. Um, though she she left and and kind of traveled a bit and ended up from my whole life. I knew her in California. Um, like so many others. So I always had this little seat of the University of Montana School of Journalism as an excellent place to be. Um, it was always told in the uh, stories of adventures and growing up that this was an excellent place to be. The other half of that narrative that kind of brought me into journalism specifically was uh, my great-grandfather who um, was a journalist in the gold rush in the Yukon and uh, worked his way north like so many other people during that gold rush, really in a response to a lack of opportunities and a and a longing for adventure, and made a name for himself um, in the north. I read his stuff now, and it's um, <laughs> it's somewhat insufferable. Yeah, a little hokey maybe, <laughs> yeah. a little, little uh, propagandistic maybe. <laughs> well, I think he was actually like the minister of propaganda for the state of, for the territory of Alaska. Yeah. I think that might have been his title. Um and uh, but those two stories kind of set the stage for my career, uh, seeking a career in journalism, that I liked the idea of being actively involved on the ground with people in places that people care about. I mean, fundamentally, I care about um, I care about the places people care about and the way they are given agency to chart their own uh, lives in those places. And um so I think the the story of my great grandfather, who whose print name was the Stroller, um, got me into journalism. And I think the story of my the stories of my grandmother, um, and these are two separate family branches on the tree. But the stories of my grandfather grandmother in Missoula and at the University of Montana always had it always on my horizon. Um, but I didn't arrive here until uh, a career in journalism, and r- really I came to academia in the hope that that I could contribute to a continuing value of fact-based, verifiable storytelling, um, and that I could share some of my experiences with my students. It was, um, as many, many journalists will, uh, or former journalists will tell you, the early 2000s uh, were a difficult time for a lot of chain newspapers. Um, I think I mentioned to you, I, I think of journalists as, as digital steel workers. We, uh, we have lost our jobs in those types of numbers. And um, I quit my last job, but uh, only because the chain had fired 
um, almost all of my editor of my peer editors. And I had been on a fellowship, which was fabulous, but I came back and I didn't want to work for a place that would fire such excellent people. Mm. Um, I don't really recommend quitting your job. <laughs> you should let people fire you. Um, but I didn't feel like going through that. Felt um, good at the time it, though, right? It, you know, Felt I, good at the time. It was, Principles. A, it was authentic. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was an authentic me. I don't know if I could possibly have done anything different, but in hindsight, if you get fired, you get to collect your unemployment. Yeah. Um, so it was a little quirk of, of, of circumstance that set me free from, from the daily grind of journalism, uh, a daily grind that I, I really loved, but gave me the opportunity to consider what else I might do. And I came to Missoula with a critical mass of family and friends here that made it a place I could care about and made it uh, full of people that I could care about. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so I came without a job. I didn't have this job when I came here. But uh, things conspired, uh, opportunities opened up, and um, my time here has, has uh, really solidified my relationship with this place. Yeah. And I mean, I'm going to circle back to the beginning of that story because I, I think that's another thing you and I uh, share in common where, where I didn't pick up the journalism legacy, but both my father and my grandfather were political reporters and I and I grew up in that world. And so I want to I want to, you know, have you talk a little bit about, you you know, sort of bringing two threads that, uh, of your um, your story together. What's changed? What 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 are the deep changes that have happened? And what are I mean? I guess what are the superficial ones? In other words, what's still around from these older models of journalism that um, you know really did uh, push forward our democracy in really substantial ways? I mean, shifts in journalism in the early twentieth century to get it away from some of that propagandistic writing, the yellow journalism that that predominated. Um, you know, did we pass through a period that we just can't recover? Or what parts of it can we hang on to? And I mean, I don't need you to go into the whole economic part because obviously I think people know about, you know, digitization, but also before that, the con you know, the consolidation of the journalism industry. That story is one we're used to. But what what's changed and what stayed the same? You know, like the circling back to um, Merwin's stories and sense of the, as much as things change, that becomes the story. Um, I, th I think... We are in a golden age of narrative story storytelling. Um, I think the cost of entry to journalism is almost nothing now. We all have the opportunity and the technology to reach millions, uh, audience of millions. Um, we have begun the hard work of repairing the exclusion of important voices from storytelling. Uh, mainstream media has embrace that I think now literally now uh, and not two years ago yeah. uh, has embraced the importance of hearing a diversity of voices in their full narrative so I think storytelling has actually become um, the way we interact at a human level um, in a way that that uh, we always have yeah. But now we have the uh, ability to reach the huge audiences. So I think storytelling is excellent right now. And in that way, may it be better, right? In other words, that the older forms of journalism were exclusionary, right? The, these were big institutions built on yeah. kind of exclusionary structures. Right, right. I think we are hearing stories that we have, we have needed to hear for a long time. They've always been there, as, right. as Merwin says. The stories have always been there. Um, but we are, um, more people are better able to hear them now. Um, so I think that's very important and exciting, and I hope that it inspires uh, 
both students of journalism and people who throw themselves at it and learn by doing. Um, that said, I think it's very noisy. I think there is a lot of noise in uh, the quest for our attention. And I think recognizing the attention economy and as each of us is an audience of one and we have to take care of our own bandwidth and we have to decide which stories we're going to listen to and which storytellers we're going to allow into our space. Mm. So I think that is how things have changed. I feel like that the attention economy and the noisiness um, is a big change from ever before yeah. and, and something that we have to take personal responsibility for. And um, that means you have to decide, am I going to listen to people I trust? And w am I going to take the time to see if they've earned my trust? And for journalists, it means you must earn people's trust. And that means taking care of your facts. Yeah. Yeah. And I think so there, the negative is the niche audience means we don't share common stories as much, maybe that, that with the, such a proliferation with yeah. the filters we all have to put up now. So, so in other words, the, the balance between the older model and the new model is that the audience is a smaller, it's an audience of one or, or dozens, right? Small. We hope confluence becomes bigger than one, you know, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, no, I, 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 that's, that's really well put. And I think it frames perfectly kind of how to segue into the, you know, one of our key topics on this show is to talk about graduate education. And, you know, that's, you know, it's the podcast of the graduate school and your program is vibrant and, you know, you have such passion for it. Um, you, you balked on the answering the CV of failures question, which we ask a lot of our guests, you know, but you actually have already hit on it, right? It wasn't a failure, but it was a, a you know, a change in your life that required you to kind of show some resilience and figure out. And we think that's a really important message uh, for our graduate students, right? That, that every, any journalist in particular, but any graduate student, uh, uh, you know, going through a degree and then thinking about what to do with it is going to face major obstacles, right? And then part of that training is that. What are the other traits? What are you looking for in a graduate student when you're doing admissions and everyone's applied? What, what kinds of people are you looking for? Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I really value students that bring uh, a sense of their own curiosity uh, and demonstrate their engagement in satisfying that curiosity. There are so many opportunities for students in their undergraduate years to engage in, uh, in community-based learning opportunities, in um, kind of real-time real lesson learning, and a rich combination of um, book learning and doing. Uh, I think is important for journalists. Journalism is is still, and I think always will be a, um, a hands-on enterprise. You have to call people. You have to talk to people. You have to gain people's trust. Um, you have to talk to people who you don't know, and that's uh, an embodied activity. And so it does require a willingness to put yourself out there, and that I think requires curiosity. You have to wonder what is out there and be willing to take the risks to go check it out yourself. So I, I look for evidence that that's how, the, how people live. Um, but I also think that journalism, and this is why it's a curious field, uh, the humanities is extremely important to understanding and bringing uh, tools to understanding how the world works and tools for pursuing that curiosity. So I also look for evidence that a person has taken um, rich and expansive courses coursework in the humanities 
I'm so glad you said that, and you know I'm glad. <laughs> that was almost like you were feeding me. But but I actually think, it, you know, coming back to the, the, the core craft of journalism, the curiosity and the interest in other people, but also the the willingness and ability to hear multiple perspectives, um, that's core to a journalist's work. Yeah. And I think, and I think, and others, you know, who do this teaching in humanities think that's one of the things we do, right? One of the things we do best is really introduce to students to, here's what you think, but here's a range of perspectives and experiences. How do we balance this out? What are the ways we balance it out? And so uh, I love that you kind of screen for that, that you think of that as a crucial um, feature um, for your graduate students. What, what do you hope to see uh, in their growth and development over the course? It's a relatively short program. It's very hands-on. What are you kind of hoping to see them do and experience and become by the end of their program? You know, I very much hope that they challenge their own assumptions. Um, I see this happen year after year. People that enter with a strong assumption that they know the, the way of the world. Um, and to see them scrutinize that over the course of a year and come out knowing it better by having challenged their original assumptions is a uh, growth trajectory that I, I prize and I hope goes on for the rest of their lives. Um, I really want my students to come here ready to help each other. I think, um, I think the world is a lonely place. I think enterprise can be difficult, and especially in this new world of journalism where you're not sure. Uh, journalists go through more more job changes, more dramatic job changes now than they used to. And, and I had a lot of different jobs, but, um, but they felt more serial. And it feels like there's more churn now. And I think the relationships that the students build in their graduate experience will endure. Mm -hmm. And I, um, that's part of my goal as the director of our graduate program is to facilitate the, the growth and kind of cohesion of a group. Yeah. And I mean, in a lot of fields, people think of networking and their connections as being crucial, important, but actually you're speaking to something else, which is, you know, yeah. not, not the practical um, outcome driven, career driven kind of networking, but the, but the collegial cohort support. Yeah. Yeah. I, those are both two different things. Um, both are important. Um, I chafe at the importance of networking but i don't deny it um, yeah right but you don't want to uh, reduce one to the other no I mean, there's a value in the in the cohort experience the cohort experience is more of a lifeboat it's a, something that buoys you through time and um i hope years from now the students who meet here are still calling each other and sharing their struggles and reaching out when they know each other are struggling uh both personally and professionally so to uh I, the great gift of covid to the current uh, our current class has been time uh, expressly dedicated to the to our individual experiences under COVID because it's something we're all sharing and yet it affects each of us deeply and differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great example, probably for uh, you know historians later of a, a kind of bellwether event, a kind of before and after event, and how yeah. people respond and react to it, both individually and in groups, is going to define who we are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's true. Well, and I, we've already hit on a lot of the things that we've, you know, we like to talk about, but do you want to say more about what you think, you know, the biggest challenges, but also the biggest opportunities are for graduate students in the field? I mean, you kind of spoken to some of them uh, already about, um, you know, the opportunity being crafting a, a form of storytelling and getting it out into a, a much bigger audience than maybe was conceivable before. 
Yeah, you know, I think it is it is an opportunity-rich time for storytellers. But that doesn't mean that it's financially a rich time. <laughs> yeah. And so deciding where am I, I where are these students going to spend their time? Where can they find a way that marries uh, their passions and their values with their growing need to support themselves and a family? Um, and I just, uh, that's an eternal problem. But the churn that I alert, uh, alluded to earlier, that fog of abundance is, uh, makes it harder. It always seems that the cool thing to be doing is just around the corner and that mm. it takes a certain self-confidence and reinforcement of your peers to decide that the coolest thing to be doing is in fact the thing you're doing already doing yeah <laughs> and i um and so the trick is to stick with that and to find a way to make a living off of it and uh, uh so it all kind of comes together there there's an abundance of opportunity there is uh there there's the opportunity to have the support of your peers um and there is the opportunity, despite the hyper-partisan uh, atmosphere, public atmosphere of civic discourse today, I think there's the opportunity for conscientious uh, journalists to continue to inform the conversations, the critical conversations that all of our communities need to be having now, whether we want to or not. And for journalists, it often means telling a story people don't yet know they need to hear. And yeah. that, that's very hard. Yeah. And, and of course, the program itself made this pivot towards environmental journalism, um, natural resource journalism. What lay behind that, behind really zeroing in on that topical area uh, as opposed to remaining a, a broad journalism department? I mean, I know you obviously still do teaching in a broad number of areas. You have you know some wonderful work going on in the department and indigenous uh, reporting, for example. But can you speak a little bit to that program identity? Yeah. Um that was kind of uh, my my first year here. Um, already in motion was the idea that we should refine our graduate education. Uh, the thought was our undergrads come and they receive four years of journalism training, and our graduate students in the broader program um, would arrive and receive two years of of training, and that perhaps we should make an effort to distinguish the two a bit more. Choosing environmental. Uh, science and natural resource journalism at a time when other schools were actually ending their environmental programs, although many have been reborn. Uh, it, it's a natural choice for us. It pairs us with our allies across campus who are doing just outstanding work in um, knowing our natural functions and systems at a deeper level. It pairs us with our place. Um, Missoula is... Um, just a great example of where nature and humanity meet, but on a scale that's uh, accessible for new storytellers, uh, and yet broad enough to carry lessons that that can inform the world on a more um, on a bigger stage. So it made sense to go for for environmental uh, issues, um, environmental science and natural resource journalism. Frankly, is a wordy title that um, uh, bridged kind of partisan interests in a way that uh, um, people above my pay grade thought made sense. Um, I've, I see the environmental world as as quite a bit actually bigger than that. And um, to me, the most important intersection is, um, is, is, pub is really public health and the environment. Although the raw understanding of our environmental systems and the non-human creatures that inhabit 
those systems um, are, of course, just vitally important as well. Um, but our readers are mostly human. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, you and I have talked about this in the past, but one of the things I really love about this program is how much it fosters a kind of cross-campus discussion. You pointed out this relationship to other really centers of excellence on campus. And so you embed um, your graduate student journalists in labs around campus. And um, the UM Bridges program would be another you know, area, but you have people in wildlife biology all around forestry. You work with a bunch of different departments. And I think that's such a powerful model for the kinds of cross-campus, cross-collaborative work that we need to do, interdisciplinary work. Yeah. I, ca I can't say enough uh, how my colleagues across campus in the sciences um, make our program a success. Um, our Story Lab class, which teaches science uh, science writing and reporting, uh, is unique and the envy of many other journalism programs because our students spend extended periods of time, a full semester embedded with a lab doing hard, uh, hard research and asking questions that produce new knowledge. And to put science and journalism in conversation like that at a foundational level for our students is a great opportunity. Uh, it opens uh, perspectives for journalism students that would otherwise take years to develop. And and my colleagues across campus are um, f fabulous for taking on my students. And I, I hope that they get um, a sense of journalism and storytelling in exchange. Um, but for the most part, it's a selfless gift that my colleagues give well, to us. Well, yeah, and I'll, I'll speak for their behalf. It's not selfless. They get a lot out of that, right? And, and one of which is just to be thinking about the importance of telling that story. In other words, in others, to have someone in their, in their lab means they're thinking now about what it means to transmit that scientific knowledge more broadly, and that's hugely impacting. We always end every episode with quick hitters. <laughs> These are about, you know, life in Western Montana mostly, uh, but also a little bit about the professor's life. So morning or night person? You asked this question. I don't know how I answered it. <laughs> Off the top of your head. Morning or night person? Well, that's, see, that's the problem. Morning or night person? Um, I am both a uh, an early riser and a late goer to better, which might explain why I fade in the middle of the day. I'm, yeah. I'm big on tea time. I'm happy. Naps. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm actually a horrible <laughs> napper. I'm a horrible <laughs> napper, but I, I do like getting up early, and I do find I get a second win later. But, man, um, 4 o'clock if you want to talk, bring me a cup of tea. <laughs> Western or Eastern Montana? Again, I'm such an equivocator. I live in Western Montana. I think it's beautiful, but I spent many years in central Wyoming, and there is nothing that speaks to me the way the prairie does. Yeah, yeah, we could put it mountains or prairies. Yeah. That's another way of putting it. Bitterroot or Clark Fork? Yeah, Clark Fork. Bitterroots or Pentlers? Bitterroots. Missions or swans? This is so hard. I have a little cabin right in between the two. I look at the swans, but I find the missions just absolutely alluring. I spend more time in the swans, but I admire the missions greatly. Yeah, I kind of have the same experience. I spend a lot more time in the swans. I look at them as well from our cabin, but the missions, every time you see them, they're just so majestic. They are. Yellowstone or Glacier? Uh, Yellowstone. Winter or summer? Gadzooks. Is that one of these questions? Yeah. Winter or summer, uh, uh, you know, here it is, March. I, I can only say summer because I, I, <laughs> the I season, haven't seen it yet. The season you're anticipating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sunrise or sunset? Uh, sunrise. 
I loved what you said about your mom as your favorite artist, by the way. I won't even ask it as a question. I'll just say, I just, I love that. Um, and it, it, it actually brought one generation closer to your story, right? Another source of inspiration in your family. That was beautiful. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, family um, is very important to me right now. And I think COVID has brought that home. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a common experience. Well, thank you for joining us on Confluence, Nadia. Thanks for having me, Ashby. If you like what you've heard in this episode, you've got a great production team to thank. Jordan Unger, graduate student in UM's environmental journalism program, and Charles Bolte, a recent graduate of that program. You can hear their audio profiles of graduate students on SoundCloud or the Confluence website at www.umt.edu grad. Click on the Telling Our Story tab for podcast episodes and videos that highlight the amazing work our graduate students do. Enjoy the float.